Well, as we continue in our studies of the life of Abraham, we've reached the 14th chapter. And until this point, we've followed Abraham and his family, and we've seen his great faith and his calling. That's all found in chapter 12. And then we've looked at the two different trials that he faced in his life um, that are recorded for us. There was the first trial, the trial of poverty, where he was le- which led Abraham into Egypt. That's recorded for us in the second half of chapter 12. But then we see his restoration and his return back to the promised land. And that's found in the beginning of chapter 13. And then last time we looked at his second trial, perhaps a more subtle trial, the trial of prosperity which he faced. And it led to the division in his household between Lot and himself. And Lot went to the east and Abraham remained in the land of promise. At the end of chapter 13, though, the Lord God reappeared to Abraham. And as he was now settled by the terebinth trees of Mamre, we're told that the Lord came and he reiterated, he repeated, and he expanded upon the promises that he'd already made to Abraham. And so that's the background so far. And it's all around Abraham. But as we come into the first half of chapter 14... It kind of moves outwards. We're looking at what's happening in the area. We're given a historical account of what was happening in the land that surrounded Abraham at the time. Now, whenever we come across historical passages like this in the Bible, we must always bear in the back of our minds that they're not just here to some sort of filler to flesh out the word of God interspersed between revelations about God to add some authenticity to the word of God. Historical passages are here because the Bible uses many different ways to illustrate and convey teachings. A lot of these illustrations are through history. And this is one of the main ways that the Bible actually illustrates points from the words of God. So there are always meaning, there is always meaning and lessons to be ascertained from the things of God and to be learnt from the history that we have included here. It's not always easy to find, but we have to dig deep because it's there. So in the first 11 verses of chapter 14, we discover what's going on in this land, the political situation, the land that God had told Abraham to look at, the land that was to his east, his west, the north and the south. And what we see as we look at this land is that it's it's made up of many city-states and the surrounding areas. And each of these city-states is ruled by a king. The strength and the influence of these kings is varied. For example, if you look at verse 2, you'll see that the king of Bela, that is Zoar, his name's not mentioned. And so it's widely accepted that he was probably quite a minor king compared to some of the others. So their power and their influence was varied. What we do know, though, is that all these kings listed in verses 1 and 2 were vassals to King Shedeloma of Elam. And it came to pass, after 12 years of subjection to Shedeloma, that five of these kings, who are listed in verse 2, and I'm not going to keep reading them, five of these kings rebelled against his rule and the hefty accompanying tribute that no doubt accompanied and would have been demanded of them. And we can assume that almost certainly emissaries, messengers had been sent from Shedaloma to these kings telling them 
to fall back in line or else. And their attempts had failed. And so in the 14th year, we're told that Shedaloma, he gathered together his forces in alliance with three other kings and went to attack these rebels. Now, I think it would be really helpful if I could paint an image in your mind of what happened. There's all these names. And so I think one of the most helpful ways to do it is to imagine this pulpit as the country of Israel. It's roughly rectangular in shape. On the west of Israel is the Mediterranean Sea. And on the eastern side, about a third of the way up, in the middle, for about a third of the length of country, is the Dead Sea. The four kings who were in alliance under Shedaloma, they came from various cities, cities to the north and the east of Israel, from present-day Syria, all the way around through Iran, all the way around through Iraq, rather, and to Iran there. So that was where they came from. And they marched southwards, we're told. This is what we see from verses 5 onwards, to meet the rebels. And they came down by a route to the east of Israel, through the lands of the Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Emim, and the Horites. And we're told that Shedaloma, he engaged these people in warfare, and he defeated them. If you have a further interest in these people, because a lot of people do, they're called the giants, Deuteronomy chapter 2 sheds a lot of light on them. Um, the Moabites called them the Emim, which means giants, and the Ammonites called them the Zamzumin. So he defeated all these did Shedaloma. Now whether he attacked these nations because maybe they were in sympathy with the rebels or he attacked them because if he didn't attack them they could potentially go up to his homelands and attack them as he came to defeat these rebels, we don't know. But what we do know is that God was using Shedaloma without him knowing as an instrument of his wrath on these people. These people who were in, this, in the promised land, they were to be wiped out eventually, and Shedaloma was an instrument of God's there. Having defeated all these people on the east, he came all the way down to the southernmost point of Israel, which is known as the Negev, and then he turned back and he attacked and defeated the Amalekites and the Amorites. Upon doing this, the five kings who rebelled, again, they're all listed in verse 2, They came from a cluster of cities to the south of the Dead Sea on the eastern coast. And they came out in force to meet this army which had crushed all the giants, the Amalekites and the Amorites in the Valley of Sidim. And we're told that there was a great battle between these two armies. And in this battle, the rebels and their leaders, who included the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, were soundly thrashed. They were left in a chaotic rout for their lives. Verse 10 just gives us an idea of the insight and the panic that was upon them as they fled for their lives. So great was their haste to get away from the slaughter of the army that many of them were lost in the asphalt or the tar pits that were a feature of that valley before they could get to the safety of the mountains. So that's what happened Now you may be thinking to yourselves, why has this war, which I've never read about anywhere else, I've never heard of it anywhere else, why has it been included in the Bible under the influence of the Holy Spirit? 
What are the lessons that we can draw from this history? Well, first of all, we do well to remember that it's the wise that learn from history. This is the very first war that's mentioned in the Bible, the first of many. And it's war, it's an event that's been repeated and continued to plague the course of humanity throughout the millennia. And secondly, and I think more importantly, it's wise for us to examine what the causes of this war were, which took place over 4,000 years ago. Now, on one hand, the catalyst for this war appears to be immediately obvious. Five kings refused to pay their tribute to their overlord. But if we examine the course of human history and all the other wars we read about in the Bible or just know about from our history... Wars are continued, and they can be attributed to many alternative issues. Um, The explanation that wars are due to the refusal of Jews cannot explain the cause of all wars. And so therefore, we must look deeper at why this land of promise that God had given to Abraham was a land full of warfare. Wars and rumours of wars, they've continued to be a theme that's woven into the history of every single country in the world throughout the centuries. So why is the world as it is? Why are we, like Abraham, surrounded by wars, surrounded by disturbance and misery and unhappiness? Why is the history of man one of unhappiness, one of heartache and one of sorrow? Well, the Bible's explanation of why these things are as they are and why these things happen is very simple. In the beginning of Genesis we read, it's because man has departed from God's ways when he fell in the Garden of Eden. Mankind has lost the blessing of God and he no longer walks in perfect fellowship with a holy God. Instead, we're all under the wrath of God. As fallen creatures, we're controlled and governed by sin. And that sin lurks within the innermost parts of our hearts. It's not the circumstance or the environment that's the cause of wars. I mean, sure, these things contribute, but they're not the root cause. The cause of warfare and all this disturbance that we see of here comes from deep within the heart of man. And this is the Bible's explanation of why things are as they are. If we turn to James chapter Yeah, James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, we read, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adam's original sin has made us creatures of lust and creatures of desire. And so selfishness, exploitation, greed are the things that mark the man of this world, the man whose life is governed by sin and the man who lives for the present age. Without the will of God and the law of God in his hearts, each person therefore sets themselves up as a, his own God. He dictates what's right in his own eyes. And he's entirely out for himself and what he can get out of life. And if he sees some things he desires, he takes it. 
if he cannot get it by honest and peaceful means and he thinks there's a chance of him getting away with it, then he's very happy to use deceit or force to get what he wants. And that's why the land that Abraham viewed, just like our own world today, was a land full of schisms, factions, arguments, volatility and oppression. And furthermore, behind all these workings out is the unseen power of the devil, who we're told is the ruler of this world himself. And also, he's under the judgment of God. This fallen angel, who desired the highest place in heaven for himself, is also characterized, um, like those who were slaves to sin, by his ambition, by his greed and his selfishness and his pride and his hatred of God. And the one ambition of the devil is to spoil, to smash, and to ruin everything in God's world. What we experience here on this earth is actually something of this cosmic battle that's going on in the spiritual world at the moment. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So if you think about the evil mood and great power that can grip a man, a man like Adolf Hitler, who many people who went to his rallies said they felt a force and a power, there was something about him there was, that they never experienced anywhere else. This evilness and force that can plunge a whole area or the whole world into chaos and great violence, it has its root origins in the evil forces of sin and darkness that are within the spiritual realm. And so one man will oppress another man. One man will seize another man's possessions. One kingdom will subdue another kingdom in order to feed their lust and their wealth, their lust for wealth and power. This is, as we see here, Shedaloma subdued others, this is the history of the world. It always has been and it always will be. Daniel saw this in his vision given in chapter 7, uh, where he saw the vision of all the beasts, those four great beasts, um, those four great empires which represent the kingdoms of this world. Their greed and lust for power and possessions as they trample and smash all underfoot leaving desolation and ruin and sorrow in their wake. This is the history of mankind that we're reading about in the first 11 chapters, a history that we celebrate, the history that we're taught at schools, a history of war and battle, of wars and battles, and a history that, quite frankly, is utterly beastly. And rich countries are a desirable prey, and idle, luxurious countries they're also an easy prey to growing power. In Ezekiel chapter 16, we learn that this is exactly what Sodom and Gomorrah were. They had a fullness of food and an abundance of idleness. Shedeleomer, for him, they were perfect targets, but these kings of these countries, they wanted more of this for themselves. And so nations like this, they are only symptomatic of the people who live within them. Look at the determination of the king of Sodom in verse 8 to go out and to face this far superior force in battle. 
this force that had defeated the giants, the Amorites and the um, Amalekites, he, he was determined to face them just so he could increase his own wealth and his own possessions. And it was his lusting for more that led to the destruction of his army and the ransacking of his city. Those whose sole motivation are the things of this world only ever wish to preserve what they have and to increase their enjoyment and ease in life. And this may be increasing their possessions, their reputation, their relationships or experiences. And so they have no contentment in worship. There's no following the will of God. They're entirely motivated by the changing things of this world. And this motivation, which is of the world, is something that the believer is always having to face and to war against within themselves whilst we are in our present unperfect bodies. Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 7, verse 22. He writes down his own experiences. He says, For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. There are times when believers stumble and fall into the ways of the world and into what the world desires afterwards. And as we move on to our second point, we're going to see that this was exactly what the case was with Lot. I've called my second point the consequence of living in the world. Lot is mentioned in verse 12. Chedorlaomer, he'd crushed the five kings. He'd taken all their goods and possessions and people. And we only need to think of examples from more modern history to imagine the wickedness and the debauchery that occurs when a victorious force storms a city um, where they are free from the restraints of law and order. Caught up in all this was Lot. Uh, verse 12 tells us, Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, was taken and his goods and departed. Compromised by the choice that he'd made in chapter 13, with disregard for his spiritual health, we can track Lot's increasing compromise through the chapters. So in chapter 13, verse 12, it says, Lot dwelt in the city, cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But now we read he was living in Sodom itself, that wicked city, that city where the devil ruled without any opposition. For Lot, this was to be a tremor, a warning tremor before the huge earthquake that happened in his life later on in chapter 19. Spurgeon wrote... Those believers who conform to the world must expect to suffer for it. And so it was the case with Lot. Now, this is not to say that all believers who are caught up in warfare or who are caught up in kidnappings are being, are being punished for some compromise in their life. The Bible's quite clear on that. So just think of Daniel. He was 16. He'd done nothing wrong. He was walking with God. But what is equally true 
is that there have been times in history where the Lord God has allowed his people to suffer because of the foolishness of their choices and the departure from their, his ways. So a classic example of this is Samson. And a lot of pain and a lot of heartache can be avoided if we are sensitive to the warnings of Scripture and we walk in the path of righteousness, and be that in marriage or friendship or business. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? As we will ultimately see as we go through the chapters, Lot chose to ignore this warning and he returned to Sodom before its destruction. He became an increasingly important figure within the city councils, but the cost to him later on was huge, as we will see. But we return back. Lot was now a prisoner, verse 12, along with his entire household. He was a man who had lost all his flocks, and they were many, and his possessions... And he was being transported back to his captor's land to face a life in slavery and misery. Here he was, caught up in the tempestuous seas of life, the problems of this world. He was out of his depths. He was desperate and he was in deep, deep trouble. Lot was in no position whatsoever to save himself. He was entirely incapable of influencing his freedom. He couldn't buy it. Everything had been taken from him. He was just a slave to captives. He was a slave and a captive to forces and factors that were far greater than himself and far greater than anything he could deal with. His only hope of deliverance came from outside. And in verse 14, we see that Abraham was to be his deliverer. Informed by somebody who had escaped, uh, verse 13 says, one who had escaped came and told Abraham the Hebrew who dwelt by the terebinth trees. And made aware of Lot's fate and disposition, we're told, Abraham gathered together all his forces to go and intervene and to try and rescue his nephew. Now, it's just a side point, this, but it's worth noting that Abraham wasn't initially involved in all this dispute and skirmishing, was he? Um, He was part of the kingdom. A lot of the areas around him, a lot of the kingdoms and cities around him were all involved in this war. And some Christians might use this passage to try and justify a pacifist and isolationist policy. But for all the good intentions of pacifism... They do come from a position of ignorance and lack of understanding about the true nature of man that we've already looked at. You cannot contract out of this world. You cannot stick your head in the sand and sort of ignore everything that's going on in the sinful world, the grim realities and the truths that face us that you don't want to confront. There are times when you cannot reason with sinful men um, by words alone. Again, a really obvious example is Hitler. Chamberlain came back with that paper, peace, Hitler had agreed all this. It didn't work. Force was the only answer. And as believers, we are told to pray, we're told to desire for peace, we're told to uphold it as much as possible. 
But here we do have to acknowledge that the Bible does justify force and war in certain situations as something that is necessary and must be a last course of action. Nevertheless, despite all that had gone on between Abraham and Lot in the previous chapter, the dividing of their households, the disrespect that Lot had shown Abraham as the senior man of the family, the man who he owed everything to, just notice how Abraham held no grudges against his nephew. There was no satisfaction at his nephew's misfortune and a sort of I told you so spirit. In fact, it was quite the opposite. This godly man was full of love for Lot. The man who was like his brother, as we're told. Abraham, in verse 14, Abraham heard that his brother, that's how close a relationship he had to his nephew. And so Abraham mustered the whole of his household, all those who could fight, 318 armed warriors, and he set off in pursuit of the raiding forces in order to bring back his nephew. Abram seemed to have a very good and peaceful relationship with his neighbours too. Um, he was allied by Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshkol, and brother of Ana, who were his allies. They were willing to join forces with him too. It's interesting to note, isn't it, that since Egypt, Abraham had prospered and flourished. Um, just a reminder of the words, isn't it? Those who honour me, I will honour them. And so Abraham set off in pursuit. Now, it wasn't a half-hearted sort of pursuit, a token gesture, a virtue signalling. He was sincere and determined to rescue Lot. And he travelled 120 miles before he caught up with Chedaloma and his forces by Dan. Perhaps that Chedaloma and his forces, they defeated every force in the area, um, flushed with victory, they were complacent, um, not expecting to be attacked because of their reputation. We don't know, but in verse 15 we can see what Abraham's tactics were, how he ended up defeating this man. This was his strategy. He divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobar, which is north of Damascus. Abraham's decision-making was clear, he was intelligent, and he was also very decisive. He was also brave and led by example. It says he and his servants. He didn't leave the others to do the dirty work. Abraham led by example. And perhaps, above all, the Lord was with him. And Abraham, he takes all Lot and his household, all their goods, and all the goods of the people, and the people who have been captured. And he then returns southwards with his rescued nephew back towards their homelands. Now, surely this story from history is a picture to show us our need for a deliverer and to point us to the deliverer of whom the Bible speaks. The gospel strand of deliverance runs all the way throughout the Bible and it proclaims the glorious news of one who will be sent by God to help those who are oppressed, those who are burdened and slaved to sins, those who are helpless, deep in bondage and misery to the lusts, to the passions and desires 
and to solve the deep problems that they are in that they just cannot conquer themselves. Who is this deliverer, you might ask? Well, who is this? The prophet Isaiah spoke about him in chapter 61, verse 1. And those words were uttered by the deliverer himself in Luke 4, verse 18. Luke 4.18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Words uttered by the Lord Jesus Christ. The son of God sent by his Father from the glory of heaven to save people from the power and bondage and effects of sin. Hear the words that Christ spoke in John chapter 10, verse 7 to 10. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And we'll go in and out and find pastures. Um, the thief does not come except to steal and destroy and kill. I have come that they may have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. And so perhaps what we should be asking ourselves at this moment is this. Have you seen your true position in this world? Have you acknowledged the helplessness and the hopelessness of the situation that you were born into You're standing here on earth. Have you realized that you are a slave to sin and to the desire and forces that control us that are far beyond us? Because if you have and you're looking for a solution, the only solution that the Bible has is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not things that we can find from deep within us, but it comes through a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who promises to us that he who seeks me shall find me. When Christ has rescued us and delivered us, how blessed an experience it is for the believer to be free from their sin. David rejoiced about this experience in his 34th Psalm. He said, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And so for our final point I'd just like to look at the great contrast between the man of God and the man of this world and the difference in their lives. Abraham is returning on his journey home and two kings came out to meet him, verse 17, in the valley of Sheba, the king of Sodom and Melchizedek, king of Salem. I'd like to look at Melchizedek in more detail, God willing, in two weeks' time. I realise we've studied him in a lot of detail recently from our Hebrew series, but we will look at him from a Genesis perspective. But we read about him here in verses 18 to 20. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, bought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. (coughs) And he, that's Abraham, gave him a tithe of all. Bearing in mind that Abraham had just conquered the most impressive military force 
in the land and he'd soundly defeated these four kings, perhaps it comes as quite a shock to the reader to see that as this unknown, mysterious figure of Melchizedek comes out, Abraham sees himself as an inferior to this man. There's a humility of spirit in Abraham. He was not puffed up in his pride and his achievements. Both these men were kings. But Abraham saw that in this king Melchizedek that he had a far higher office, a far higher authority than Abraham had. He was the priest of God Most High. And in Melchizedek's office as priest of the God Most High, he had this special role, something that Abraham didn't have. He was a mediator between God and man. He was an intercessor, that is, one who God had chosen to represent himself, and he had chosen Melchizedek to serve the people as well. And so Abraham submits himself as an inferior to this man. After all, the one who receives the blessing, blessed be Abraham of God, most high possessor of heaven and earth, is always inferior to the one who gives the blessing. Abraham's eyes were firmly fixed on the higher things of the world above. He recognized that this was a God-given role. He worshipped Yahweh, the one true God. And so he was not a man puffed up with pride. He was not a man who demanded respect and deference from other kings. For Abraham, his life was God first and the things of the world second. And there's a great contrast in this passage between Abraham and the king of Sodom. What, were the first, what was the first word of the king of Sodom found in verse 21? Give. Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. Is it not obvious from Abraham's attitude towards other men and the way he approached the hurdles thrown at him by this world, how different the man of God is from the man of this world? The king of Sodom, he only lived for the things of this world. His first word, give, that's all that was on his mind. After all he'd been through, all he'd lost, all he wanted was give. All he was interested in were possessions and power and influence. And we looked at that earlier. Those who live for the world, they're controlled by sinful desires and lusts. And so in some ways his actions should come as no surprise. He had no place in his life for God, for the things of God. All his thinking was, was in the terms of man. But Abraham's thinking, Abraham's life was characterised by the things of eternity and by his walk with God. If we look at verse 22 and 23, we see it quite clearly. Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, and I will take nothing from a thread of a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. Subtly hidden within the king of Sodom's words was a snare, something that could have caused Abram and the reputation of God great spiritual damage and compromise. The glory of God was at stake here, and Abram... He understood the purity of God, the perfection that he is and demands. 
And he of whom the angels cry, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Abraham was not prepared to taint the honour of God, the glory of God's name, with these riches, these riches which had come from the wicked city of Sodom, these riches which were probably made by things that we would not like to think about, these immoral things that were going on in this city. You see, his attitude was one of glory to God. He had complete obedience to what the Lord Jesus Christ summed up as the greatest command of all in Luke 10, verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. The practical outworkings of Abraham's love for God are seen in this wisdom to refuse this offer, but also in the fact that he offered tithes. Of his possessions, he was happy to give to God a tenth of all he had. Um, And his love for man was also seen um, as he rescued Lot. There was nothing in it for himself. Abraham's world started with God. God was at the centre of everything in his life, in his worship, his conduct, and his outlook on the things of this world. And so whilst the men of this world and the leaders may squabble over them, fight over things that rust and perish and fade away and must be left behind when we all die, the believer is to have an entirely different attitude and outlook on the problems and issues of this world. Abraham understood that this world was not man's but God's world. God was at the centre of it all and God upheld all things. And if God is at the centre of your life, then you will be wise, you will be blessed in your decisions. There were so many temptations in a way for Abraham in this passage. When Lot was seized, he could have just said, serves him right and taken his land. He'd have increased his wealth and standing. Um, He could have had these riches at the end, but he realised they were tainted. He could have abandoned Lot to his fate and said, that's your problem, not mine. But the Lord blessed him. He gave him the courage, perhaps, to take his 318 men and attack this far superior force. The Lord guided him in what he did because he was walking with him. And there's some really good words in Proverbs 15, verse 24. They say, the way of life winds upward for the wise, that he may turn away from hell below. So we finish there this evening, and God willing, in two weeks' time, we return to look at Melchizedek. But as we think on what we've heard and what we've read, let's thank God for the Lord Jesus Christ, for sending him to this earth, for being the deliverer, the one who has delivered us from all these things that we ourselves cannot um, conquer from the sin that affects us all. And let us also pray, too, that we would have the ability to resist the compromise that believers like Lot, who was a believer, a godly man, can fall into. The things of this world that appear so enticing, but behind which lie sorrow. And let us walk in the path of righteousness that Abraham himself walked in.